I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone, and it's really a privilege to be up here and to be bringing you the word this morning. Um, it's been about, I don't know, three or four months since, since I, I taught here at Cornerstone, so Justin said I should wrap up like between two and three. Um, <laughs> I've got plenty stored up for you. So <laughs> you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5. Justin, is it just me or am I, I feel like I'm talking in a cave? You're the man. So I've got a real beef with uh, Christian doctrines that aren't in the Bible, or that like the word that's not used in the Bible. Like I don't even like the word Trinity. I like the word God. You know, like that God exists as as three and one. Yeah, I, I understand all that, but like it's not. I'm I'm a big fan of like biblical words engaging doctrinal concepts, like like the rapture. That makes no sense to me at all. It's just not in there. Uh, the, the word's not, you know. And eternal security is another one of those. Like, it's a phrase that we don't find in Scripture. It came from somewhere. It might have come somewhere for a good reason. Um, but a lot of times, First John 5, the text that we're going to deal with this morning, is spoken of in regards to, like, eternal security, the idea of once saved, always saved. And uh, I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about expanding our mind around a concept that I feel like we've gotten really used to and that I think holds a lot of deceptions for us. Um, because uh, not that Jesus doesn't say it to the uttermost. I believe that he does. But when we package eternal security from a Christian cultural perspective the way that we've learned to, it deeply, severely limits who we are, who God is, and what God is doing in the world. So uh, if you come from a Baptist or an independent fundamental background or a Calvinistic background, then uh, chances are you're already worried. And uh, it's all right. You can burn me at the stake after the service. Um, I just ask that you have an open mind uh, to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit might teach you in and through his word today because I think that God would want to expand and sharpen all of our hearts, all of our minds uh, to be more in line with who he is. So uh, today, uh, rather than eternal security, we're going after new creation, right? New creation. Um, and what, for, what it means for us to be who God made us to be in that place. So let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can be with you and with your people in your house on your day uh, for your praise and your glory. We, we lift you up, and we believe that you are in our midst. So thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you for the beauty of Jesus. And today we desire to have Jesus as our king, our ruler, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, come into this place and bring your sovereign reign. Come into this place and bring your spirit. Come into this place and bring your government. And uh, open up for us what it means to understand your word, what it means to be in line with you, and to, to walk with you in and through our lives. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So First John chapter 5, I'm going to be focusing on verses 6 through 12. But 6 through 12 really belongs in the flow of verses 1 to 5. So I'm going to start in verse 1. All right? So you can follow along as I read out loud. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For any, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. But by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The Dark Ages were dark, and that doesn't mean void of light. It means that it was void of the ability to learn, and it was void of the ability to think for yourself. The Roman Catholic Church controlled those two things, controlled independent study and education, did so through fear, through compartmentalization of people's spiritual lives. Spiritual manipulation became the tool by which people were held in fear that kept them in check from thinking for themselves or for reading a book on their own or for engaging the world with some kind of a mind that is not informed by those around them. So what you have oftentimes is a struggle for corruption and power at the top of a hierarchical food chain of spirituality where you have the Pope, bishops, and priests that exist in the Dark Ages and they're doing all kinds of crazy things. Then they would excommunicate you and send you to hell eternally. If you did these things, then you would get sent to purgatory. And if you really did these things really well, like if you gave a lot, lot, lot of money, and if you were a perfect person, then they would make sure that you still went to purgatory, but that you got prayed out of purgatory in a primary fashion that allowed you then to go to heaven. I don't want to get into the Roman Catholic theology or history today as to those things. What I do want to point out is the fact that what we've received from about the year 900 A.D., is a compartmentalized concept of here's hell, here's heaven. Here's hell, and here's heaven. That these two places and these two things are two places that are compartments. And in hell, there's fire, and there's burning, and there's weeping, and there's gnashing of teeth. And it's eternal torment and misery. In heaven, there's gold, and there's angels, there's harps, and there's lots and lots and lots of singing. Um, apparently, we like to sing forever, which if singing's not your gig, heaven doesn't sound that fun. <laughs> right? A compartmentalized concept of eternity. This is all this idea of your eternity is going to be decided for you. That's what the Dark Ages was about. We will determine your eternity through corruption, manipulation, and spiritual power that makes sure that you stay subject to us. It's demonic to its core. It's one of the most deeply hurtful cultural movements that you can look at in the course of the last 2,000 years. It leaves people afraid of who God is. The Dark Ages, listen closely, the Dark Ages and this compartmentalized way of thinking about heaven 
and hell. And the way that God, and this is the worst part, the way that God engages you and I in regard to these two compartments continues to be strong in the mindset of Christians. And the way that it is most effectively brought to bear in our current theological standpoint is through eternal security and the concept of eternal security. What I want to do today is sort of bring some things to light, ask some good questions, hopefully lead you in thinking some good thoughts, and let you engage the Holy Spirit about what it means for us to be people who understand, rather than eternal security, maybe something a little bit deeper, a little bit stronger, certainly more biblical words, more biblical concepts, away from a cultural fear-based idea and into a um, relationship uh, with God defined that whereby the relationship defines life instead of our life defining God. So to do that, I can go one of three directions. I can go this way, I can go this way, and I can go this way. So I'm going to start talking, and I'm going to see which way we go. And I'm going to pledge to follow the Holy Spirit in my mind and heart, and you do the same. And uh, if God wants to take you on a rabbit trail somewhere, feel free to follow him there by all means. Um, If this gets too theological for you, um, just stick with us. It'll come back around, I promise. Are you serious? All right. Well, I was literally just about to start, like, in this situation. All right. Thanks, Justin. (laughs) Right. Um, That's it. Just blame him. All right. The book of 1 John, we've also been talking about two other compartments. Two two other compartments that are throughout the book of 1 John. What are they? What heresy is 1 John warring against? What are the two compartments contained within Gnosticism? Spirit and flesh. Right? The spiritual world and the material world. Material is a better way to think of it than flesh. So there's the, the spiritual world and, and the material world. Gnosticism also wants you to think in, in a compartmentalized way. Gnosticism says that spirit is, is everything. Like spirit is very good. Material is very bad. And so the more that you can live and feel and be about the spirit, and the more you can escape the material, the better. But we happen to be like linked to the material, which means then, though, that because spirit is so important and material is sort of my container right now, but spirit is really the thing, what I do in this material body and what I do in this material life and the way that I live in this material world, after all, I am a material girl. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I had to. It just came to me. Oh, man. Like I said, I'm going to follow the Holy Spirit. Um, It's his joke, not mine. All right. (laughs) What we do in this, in the long run, it really doesn't matter. In the long run, it really doesn't have a lot of consequence. Because as long as our spiritual intention is good, as as long as our motivation is good, what I actually do with my life in, in, you know, flesh, reality, practical, we use these kinds of words to describe this, this is really isn't what's important. It's the motivation. It's the spirit behind it. It's, it's, it's my spirituality. How many of you have said, how many of you have, have friends or maybe yourself and just say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a really spiritual person, which basically means I just sort of like pick and choose, you know. 
and I worship Buddha while he sits next to a crucifix and my Bible open in front of me. You know, it's this, and, and, and we can do that. We just pick and choose, we pull, and as long as our lives stay compartmentalized, then we can play this game. We can go back and forth between these two things. Eternal security is part of this game. It's a question of, like, who's in and who's out? And are those who are in going to stay in? And are those who are out, how do we get them in? And the whole idea is to be in, right? Is to, is to, be, is to be focused here in this situation right now and, and then concerned with my evangelistic thrusts to get everything back out. Are we getting anywhere with this situation, Justin? He's ignoring me. All right. I'm just going to... I really need the presentation. This is why... I, when you teach a young man to preach, you always tell him, don't rely on technology. <laughs> don't rely on technology. But every once in a while, there's a sermon that works really well with technology. And uh, this is one of those. So I'm going to go off the top of my head and uh, deal with this. You ready? Eternal security is Gnosticism. Eternal security is Gnostic. It is Gnostic in its philosophy... It is Gnostic in its theology. It's Gnostic in its core. I just saw you folks light up. Eternal security, as a key phrase, says this, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. The basis of our eternal security arguments are along these lines. How bad do I have to be before God bails on me? Like, ha, can I ever out-sin God's love? Like, can, I, can I ever... Like I, once I'm in, is there any chance that I'm out? This is especially true, and you'll hear this stuff come out more, this compartmentalized way of thinking about things. You'll hear this most at funerals. Um, when, when people have a loved one who's, who, who dies, and then they engage like this reality, this world that they didn't want and they didn't ask for, and the pain is extreme, and the loss is so deeply felt, and what do they want to know? Is my loved one in? Heaven, that's right, is my loved one in heaven. Thank you. Good job, everyone. Give the guys in the back a hand. So to go back, this is one of those things. This, this is an aside, another dark ages kind of a thing. In verse 7 and 8, you only find verses 7 and 8 in First John 5 in like manuscripts dated around 1400 and later. There's an old theologian's phrase that says, that the Pope, the ink was still wet when the Pope gave it to Erasmus because he was trying to defend the Trinity. The Trinity was coming under great, great uh, uh, duress. And one of the points in church history that's so interesting are these verses that are sort of inserted in 1 John 5, that there are three that agree, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And uh, it's this really interesting link to this, uh, like this, this, this dominatory, uh, corrupt establishment just making the scripture say whatever it needs to say in order to get a point across so that power can be had. That's completely a rabbit trail. All right. Eternal security is curiously insecure. Eternal security is Gnostic theology at its core. Eternal security wants to know these questions. Can a person outsend God's love? Can a person outsend God's love? What will it take for God to bail on me? Maybe you've heard this word before. How do I know that my loved ones will be in heaven someday, even if they backslide? How do I know that I will be in heaven someday, 
even if I backslide? Like, what happens if I just make some really bad choices and I get really pulled into this life of sin? And, and like, what, how will I know that when I die, I get to live in heaven forever? I want security to know that God is not going to renege on his word and know that no matter what, I am in. Right, eternal security asks all of these questions, and it, it's, it's a fear-based system. It's a fear-based system. It's all the what-ifs. Like, what if this? What if that? What happens in this situation? What happens in this situation? How far backsliding do I have to go? Is one mile too much? Do I have up to five miles to backslide? What are the good words that I need to say to get back into God's good graces once I do backslide? Like, how much purgatory do I have to go through here on earth in order to get back to some feeling of goodness with God? If, and, and all of this is based around some kind of a contractual understanding. So what you hear a lot of times when somebody dies, and that person, you go to their family, and you sit down with them. I do this as a pastor all the time. Sit down with them, and a lot of times, if it's a Christian family, they'll look at you and they'll be like, we don't know if he's in heaven. And somebody will pipe up and say, yes, he is. He prayed a prayer when he was five years old, right? And God saved him at that point in time. And once saved, always saved, and this is how it works. So we know that he is in. Other people will say, but his life didn't give evidence to these things, right? His, his, his life never looked like a relationship with God. And then other people will say, yeah, but he prayed the prayer, but it wasn't there. So where is this person now? Where is this person now? Are they in heaven? Are they not in heaven? You know, are they in hell? What, is this, what does this mean? What does this look like? Eternal security becomes a place of comfort whereby if you're sure about the contract that you sign with God, then you know that you're always in because God won't break the contract. That's the idea. Problem is, is it's a fear-based system. It's a fear-based system that I think does a deep injustice to what it is that God calls us to when he saves us. Um, there's that, there's that, there's that. The scriptures do not teach eternal security. The scriptures teach assured confidence. And these are biblical words. Assured confidence. Assured confidence is based in statements that we actually see in, in the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are clear that Jesus' followers have everlasting life. Right? Jesus' followers have everlasting life. John just said here, John chapter 5, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Our belief in the testimony of God is the assured confidence of our relationship with him. Our belief in God is our assured confidence. Did you catch that? Your faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That's an old Baptist hymn, right? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That is as blatant and bold a statement as John can make about what it means for you and I to be assuredly confident in our faith. The whole purpose of the book of 1 John is so that you can live your life in deep assurance, deep confidence that you are a son of God. And what John never gives us, though, is a contract or a formula whereby we understand that. 
what he does lead us back to time and time and time again is the idea that if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then you have the assured confidence of the hope that is Jesus himself. And this compartmentalized future thinking that we find ourselves stepping into becomes very deceptive to us very quickly because it's a fear-based system where we're having questions answered that aren't God's questions that need to be answered. There are questions that we think that we want answered. Whereas if we'll rest in the assured confidence that God gives us through Christ, instead of painting God into a box and telling him to keep up his side of the bargain, then we can live in a level of freedom, but even more importantly, life that we've never known. I'm, I'm going to get to this, so just stay with me. So faith of victory overcomes the world. Eternal life, listen closely, eternal life is a relationship. Did you catch that? Eternal life is a relationship. The core of what it means for you to live eternally is that you and God are united in Christ. Eternal life is a relationship. It's not an entity. It's not a thing to be stepped into in the future. Eternal life is a relationship. It is not a contract. If you are not experiencing eternal life now, then you will not experience eternal life at all. If you are not experiencing eternal life now, then you will not experience eternal life at all. I'm not telling you that you're going to go to hell. I'm just simply saying, if you're not experiencing eternal life now, you're not experiencing eternal life at all. Eternal life is not a future state. So let's step back and look at this word. Because I think that our concepts of the space-time continuum get in the way of us understanding what God says. There's two ways of thinking about salvation that we oftentimes list things by and that we see in the scriptures. Everlasting life and eternal life. Everlasting life and eternal life. Everlasting and eternal are actually the same word. The context, the way that it's used, the flow of thought, what it's connected to, teaches us different things about these two concepts and these two words. They both come from aeon or olam. You can see the word eon in there. Everlasting. It means never-ending. Never-ending. Right? Everlasting has no end to it. Has a beginning, has no end. It goes forever. The word olam is flow. It means to, like, like a river. It, it, and it's not just flow, it's like it's a rush. It's like a dam just broke. So that before, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, through his mercy, gives you everlasting life. That everlasting life is that dam breaking and this water just taking you over. So that David says in Psalm 42, your waterfalls sweep me away. All right? I, am, I am drowning in your love, just swirling in the washing machine of God in this rush of life that comes upon you. Furthermore, this idea of flow is the same word that's used for rivers, for streams. So it's not like it's an initial punch in the face. Here's a bunch of life. It's that you are meant to continually, throughout your whole life, this everlasting life is this beautiful rush of God's love that you're continually swept away in and overcome by. This is your reality. This is who you are, drowning in life. Isn't that a great picture? Drowning, it's almost like resurrection. You know, like dead things coming back to life. Most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that was even in the old King James. Eternal life, I'm sorry. Everlasting life deals with quantity. 
So it never ends. Eternal life, however, deals with quality. Eternal life is quality of life. Quality of life. Eternal life is deeply linked to the idea of Jesus when he says abundant life. Eternal does not mean that it has no end. Eternal means that it's outside of time. Eternal means that it's not held by time at all. It's a completely separate entity from time. To try and understand eternity within the realm of time, you, you will just simply, like, your mind will explode. Eternity stands outside of time. For God to be eternal means that he is not held, constrained, or limited by any of those things. Which means that anything that is eternal is also held outside of time. Eternal life is a quality of life. It's an abundance of life. Eternal life is what Jesus says when he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it how? Abundantly. Was it just abundantly? More abundantly. And so, I mean, I don't even know what that means. It's like when Jesus said, or when Paul says that God could do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that you can ask or think. This is eternal life. Exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that you can ask or think. Eternal life is more abundance. Eternal life is Jesus over and over and over. This God who stands outside of time, completely removed from it, and who, who in himself holds life, who in himself holds joy and peace and goodness and justice and all of the things that we say that we want in our lives, all that is contained within him, this eternal God who stands outside of time. And all of these good things are part of the life that exists within him and who he is within himself. And when he gives you life, how does he give it to you? How did he make Adam? How did life get into Adam? God breathed it into Adam. Where does your breath come from? It comes from in here. Like, I can't get to it to show you. It comes from in there. You know, it's, it, this is God's life. When God, when God enlivens us, when he gives us life, it, it comes from within his own source point, which means it is eternal, which means all of that goodness, all of that joy, all of that peace, all of that love, all of that justice, all of that mercy, it all comes out with him when he breathes. And when he gives you life, and when he makes you whole in him, when he breathes his eternal life into you, you receive all that is God in that. He holds nothing back. This is the goodness of God. If someone doesn't say amen, my head's going to explode. Seriously, somebody say amen. amen. Thank you. All right. Man, I know it's been a while, folks, but don't forget who I am. If I ask a question, I expect an answer. When I get going like that, somebody needs to agree. Woo! All right. Eternal life is this beautiful, beautiful now because it stands outside of time. For you to have eternal life means that you are experiencing eternal life now. Now you might say, I don't feel like it. I get it. Sure. But that doesn't mean it's not there for you to taste. It doesn't mean it's not there for you to have. It doesn't mean that it's not your reality and that the wool has just been pulled over your eyes and you're missing out on what it means for you to be eternal, to be eternally loved, to be eternally graced, to be eternally given mercy, 
Eternal life is not a future concept. It can't be a future concept. That's not what the word eternal means. Eternal can't start in the future. Eternal life didn't happen in the past. We're talking time now. God doesn't work like that. Eternity is outside of that, and eternal life stands outside of that. And eternal life is birthed and based in the goodness and the character, the guts of God being breathed into who you and I are. And if you're not experiencing eternal life now, then you will not experience what you think is eternal life then because it stands outside of it. So many times we as Christians, we're walking through our life just waiting for things to get better. When will things be okay? There is no such destination. When will I be happy? Happiness is not a spot that you're going to get to. You can walk and walk and walk, but you'll never find it. But my life's full of pain and heartache, and I've made stupid decisions. The people around me have hurt me, and the places that I've come from are full of pain and, and darkness. And where I'm walking now is full of pain and darkness. Yeah, that's true. And in the midst of all of that, you can have life eternal. You can live life eternal. That's a true understanding of eternal life. So to go back to this and the contrast between once saved, always saved, and the assured confidence that we have in Christ, it's based in this statement that eternal life is a relationship. Because eternal life comes through being in Christ. Oh, I I, uh, missed something. Hang on a second. Let me go back here to this. John chapter 17, verse 3. If you're ever looking for a definition, like what's eternal life? How do I know that I have eternal life? What, what is eternal life? Eternal life is not a prayer. Eternal life is not a set of words. Eternal life is not a set of mental assumptions or mental statements that you agree to. If you can talk someone into faith, then they have not believed. If they mentally assent to what is true about God, that is not enough. Faith is a matter of the heart, Romans 10, 9, and 10. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. Which is why when you engage a relationship, it can't be contractual, not if it's a real relationship. We've all got contractual relationships. Those are nothing compared to the real relationships that we have. But now define that relationship. How do I know, if if you were to ask me, how do you know that your wife loves you? 18 years ago, she told me she did. Are you sure? Like, what if she didn't mean it? She meant it. Are you sure? Has she ever lied to you or anything since then, in those 18 years? Oh, actually, yeah, she has. Huh. So maybe she did mean it then, but at some point, she got tired of your crap and decided that maybe she doesn't mean it anymore. Does it feel like it felt back then? Like, do you have that romance that flies and butterflies in your stomach? No, I don't have that. Well, shouldn't you, shouldn't you have that? Well, yeah, I, I guess, I guess so. And now I'm doing what to my relationship with my wife? I'm doubting it. I'm doubting it. Ask me how my wife loves me. Go ahead. Yesterday, I was gone all day. Oh, I was gone in the morning. And she was gone in the afternoon. And when she came back, she had our car filled with groceries. She had gone out, and she had taken one of our kids with her, and she came back, 
she came back with groceries, and she thought about our family, and she thought about me. She thought about the fact that at some point this time I'm probably going to want to eat something. You know, and that was an extension of, of her love for me. Last night, I stayed up late watching a football game with Trey. You know, and it was like 11.30, 11.45 till we got into bed. She went to bed at like 10 o'clock. And she couldn't go to sleep. It was 11.45. I got in bed. I thought she was asleep. And she needed me in the back. And said, you know, I can't go to sleep if you're not in bed. I can't go to sleep if you're not in bed. Now, on one hand, that's really annoying if you're her. On the other hand, it's like, it's sort of like, wow, I'm connected to my wife. At least, you know, in, in, in that kind of a sentiment. My wife loves me enough to tell me when I'm wrong. Right? We had an experience of that on, on Friday together. I was dead wrong. And she let me know that I was wrong. Like, she's in it with me. She's engaged in it with me. We have a life together that's not based on words that we spoke to each other at some point in time. It's based in a right now kind of a concept. Right now, she's staring at me from the audience, and I know that when I ask her what she thought of this sermon, she's going to tell me the truth. She's not going to lie to me. She's not going to fill the contract of making me feel good about myself, be a good little wife that makes sure that her husband is a happy little husband, those kinds of things. She's going to tell me what the Lord actually told her. That, that's love. That's reality. That's real-time marriage right now. Right? It's an experience that's happening right now. Eternal life happens right now. And right now, and right now, and right now. And there is newness for each one. And there is God in each one. And he is giving this assured confidence of who we are in him. Because the definition of eternal life is not a contract that was signed back then at some point in time. It's not a contract that was signed yesterday. Eternal life is this, Jesus says. And if anybody has the right to define eternal life, it's him. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they know you. That's the Greek word for experience. That they experience you. That they know and engage you in real time. And outside of time. Because it's eternal. This is eternal life. That you know God. And that you know Jesus, the one that he sent. And we have boiled down knowing God to saying a prayer. We have boiled down knowing God to a list of mental ascents that we ask people to check off. And then they get into places of doubt in their life, as we all do. And oftentimes we say, don't worry about it. You're eternally secure. Don't forget what you did back there. But I'm not sure I really meant it. My, my, my life doesn't tell me I really meant it. I, my, I don't feel like I really meant it, so what should I do? Well, there's a number of things you can do in that situation. Either we can shame you, because really, you should be able to keep up with this. Or B, you can just keep getting saved forever. You know, just, just pray the prayer every day, just in case. I, I have people in my life who've done this, who, who every night, you know, just pray, God, if I die tonight, take me to heaven. And they're actually afraid that it might happen and that they might not be there when they wake up. This is a Gnostic concept at its core. So this idea of once saved, always saved has this at its core. I was made to be a spirit and this body is my prison. The greatest thing I can ever have is release from this body and this world and experience eternal life in heaven. Material is bad. Spirit is good. Get me to spirit. 
get me there. Eternal life, assured confidence, says I am a whole person, made fully whole through the new creation I am in Christ. God's great work is the redemption and wholeness of all things, a truly new creation. That's what God's going after. See, the biggest problem with eternal security is that it's selfish. The biggest problem with eternal security is that it's selfish. It does not take into account the purpose and plans of God regarding salvation and what the scriptures teach us about salvation. I'm not saying you're not saved personally. I believe you are. I am. I'm not saying there's not a point of conversion where we step into faith in Christ. I believe that. What I'm saying is that you can't stop there. That's not what the scriptures teach. The story of God is bigger than you making mental assent statements and getting in. But that's what we want. Get me in. How do I know I'm in? I did this stuff. Good. I'm solid, right? Yep, you're solid. Why? Because you did it right. But what do you, happens when you run into somebody else who did it right in a different way than you did it right? You know what we do in America? We create a new denomination. Right? I, I mean, it's, it's just it's crazy. We're sitting out here at the light at Chestnut and 6th Street. Um, and this isn't saying anything about the Episcopal Church or the EC Church or Cornerstone or any of these other things, but I'm mean, just a block away. I'm sitting there at a stoplight with uh, Ben, with my youngest. And there's two churches across the street from each other right there, an Episcopal Church and uh, uh, an Evangelical Covenant Church. And he knows that Cornerstone is right around the, right around the corner. Right? And so he says to me, uh, just pure like kid innocence, are these two churches the same church? I said, no. And then I said, sort of. Because, you know, I'm trying to, like, think theologically and, and redemptively here. But, but, no, and he goes, do they, do they ever, like, worship together? I said, no, um, they don't. Why not? Because this one is Episcopal and this one is Evangelical Covenant. And he said, and Cornerstone's right over there. Yes, Cornerstone's right over there. Do we ever do any, like, do we ever worship with these churches? Or do we ever have, he would say, have church with these churches? No. He said, he said, why not? And so I thought about that because I wanted to give him an honest answer. And I just said, well, down through the years in America, when groups of Christians have believed different things, this happened even before the revolution happened in, in the 1700s. When Christians believed different things, they would just set up a different way of worshiping God. So for a long time in church history, people, in American church history, people identified themselves not as a Christian or a Jesus follower, but by their denomination. So you're not a Christian, you're Episcopal. You're not a Christian, you're Evangelical Covenant. You're not, you're not a Christian, you're Brethren. Or, and then we've even gotten to the point where we're like, now non-denominational is a new way to identify the faith stream that you live in. So um, he was like, he listened to that, and he's like, isn't that stupid? <laughs> like, that doesn't, that, it, it just didn't compute. And it didn't make any sense. Because we're, it, this interesting thing, this is what we do, I think, when we misunderstand the deep things of God, we find ourselves in different places in different ways. I'm not saying there's not a space for different faith streams to work and move together. What I am saying is God doesn't want his church divided. I'm a full person, and God wants to redeem the fullness and fullness of both who I am, but not just the fullness of who I am, the fullness of what he has made in completion. All right, so follow me down this road. Right, so that's, that's Gnosticism. Get me out of here. 
make me a spirit. Once I'm a spirit, I'll be fully free of all of this material junk that hurts me and the pain that I have and, the, and, and, and all the stuff that I have to deal with. Get me to heaven where I can be a spirit, where I can be released in this material thing. There's a difference between heaven and the kingdom of God. Biblically, certainly, but also specifically culturally for how we think about things. When we think about heaven, angels, gold, and always singing. As the general, like, we could sit here for a while and talk about what our cultural impressions of heaven will be. We know it's going to be blissful. We know that it's going to be no pain, no tears, none of that junk. Uh, Like, it's going to be great. But there is no earth. There is no earth. Because earth has passed away. Like, like we, got, we, we left that. The whole point was to leave that and to go to heaven. The kingdom of God, however, teaches us, and this is what the scriptures teach us, that heaven and earth actually meet in Christ. Heaven and earth meet in Christ. And the person of Christ is the assured confidence. And your relationship with Jesus is the assured confidence. You can walk in absolute, completely, 100% assured confidence that he is his, or that he is yours, and you are his. And that what he is working for you is life, eternal life, like you have never known. And the eternal life that you experience today is the eternal life that he just wants to keep pouring out on you in more and more fullness. So when we think personal salvation versus the kingdom of God, this is where dichotomies start to be created that I think keep us limited from understanding what it is God actually calls us to. See, personal salvation says that Jesus died for my sin. Jesus died for my sin. Maybe you've heard it before. If I was the only person on earth, Jesus still would have died for me. Yeah, sure. I believe that Jesus' love is that deep and wide and grand. But I think that what the scriptures really teach us is that Jesus died for the sins of the world. So Jesus died for me, sure, I'm part of the world, but, but there's something bigger at work than just me. God is not reclaiming a person for himself. God is reclaiming a people for himself. Get me out of here to heaven. Right? Get, get me out of here to heaven. This kingdom of God says, let's get heaven here. Right? Let's get heaven here. Why not? The disciples say to Jesus, how should we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All over the Psalms we see God, part your heavens and come down. The whole story of scripture is a God who wants to come down. The tabernacle, we do not go up to God's tabernacle. God comes down to the earthly tent that he builds among us. The temple, he comes down. The Holy Spirit is the great coming down. To the point where Jesus comes as the incarnated one and he bridges the gap between us and God and he saves us with a deep and rich salvation through his blood. And he gives us the assured confidence of this ongoing, life-giving, eternal life relationship with him. Whereby we live in the government of God in that relationship. Which means that if you are in the kingdom, if he is your king, then the way you live your life is as someone who is bringing heaven to earth. That how God reigns there, he reigns here. 
who God is and how he thinks and his principles and his commands and his love and his goodness and his grace, all the eternal life that has been given to you without reserve, you now become a channel of that eternal life. Right? And, and you just become this, this super soaker of heaven on earth, of God's government everywhere. It's not a Christmas phrase, for unto us a child is born. That's not meant for Christmas. That's meant for this kind of a sermon. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what will be on his shoulders? The government will be on his shoulders. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. What is he? He's a prince. He's a ruler. He's the prince of peace. He's the wonderful counselor, right? He's the whole legal system. He's the almighty God. He's the one that holds everything together. He's the everlasting father. He's dead. He sets the rules. Right? He keeps it all linked and tied in together in himself and who he is. And when this child is born, when Jesus is incarnated in the world, he comes. What does he say he comes bringing? Life. What kind of life, Jesus? Abundant life. And so when you partake of him and when you are in Christ, it is this eternal life that he gives you. And all of this breath, all of this goodness, all of this life, it's held outside of any kind of time. It's held within the kingdom, which is not limited to anything except victory. Because he died and he rose again. That's the point. You and I walking in assured confidence in our faith. Why would we want the confidence of words that we said when we can have the confidence of a Savior who rose from the dead. This is our life. Jesus is our life. Our relationship with Him is our life. He is everything. And because of the confidence that we have in Christ, we have confidence in who we are in Him. His kingdom coming a not yet but already kind of experience where we are living in it and, and, and bringing it and working for it now and it is coming in its fullness and this is going to be incredible. Incredible. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Yeah. This is my father's world. He shines and all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Big difference. Big difference. Personal salvation says heaven is a physical place somewhere very high. Right? It's like, where do you... I mean, I mean and, and just to keep the mythology going, you know, you die, angels come and get you, and then you go. And how far do you go? You go. And you just go, you keep going, turn left at the quasar and the, right at the supernova, and, and then pretty soon there's Peter and some clouds and, and, and gates. And then you have a conversation, you tell a joke about Peter at the pearly gates, and you go in. All, all of this dark age mythology has perpetuated itself in and through us, even into our humor, into the way that we think about that. It, it is everywhere. It is everywhere, this compartmentalized wounding that happened back then. Uh, I'm going to write a book about it someday. All right. Anyway, heaven is a physical place somewhere very high. However, heaven is wherever God is. Heaven is wherever God is. Heaven is the realm of his presence and his government. Heaven is his kingdom. Heaven is his kingdom. 
And the beautiful thing about God is that he is working a newness in and through all things. Your salvation is not just a ticket out of this compartment full of fire into this compartment that's full of angels and singing and and goodness and bliss and freedom from things that have hurt you. Salvation, it is not that. It is not that. It is a transfer from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. Absolutely. It is an extension of Jesus' blood to you personally and then you being incorporated into a people that exist to work for the kingdom of God and to live within the kingdom of God and to get heaven here, to be agents of transformation and life and goodness and the eternal life that you have. The eternal life you have is so good why would you want to keep it to yourself? And that, that's essentially what, what the apostles say over and over. Evangelism is not a guilt trip. Evangelism is a witness. Evangelism means I saw Jesus work like this in my life, and I'm now giving testimony to it. It's what God does. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. But he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony. This is God's story. This is God's testimony. This is God speaking. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Just like we read in John 17. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does, excuse me, whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. We exist for this purpose, for this reason to bear witness to the testimony of God that looks down here at his son and says, this is my beloved son. I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. Submit to him. Make him king in your life. This is a, I'm taking the long way to get there. Do you ever think about God and fire? I think that God and fire in the scriptures is just fascinating to me. First off, the whole idea of hell, if you think about it as a place that's full of fire, um, when you get thrown into hell, do you get burnt up? No. Like, it's eternal torment. That's the traditional teaching of hell. It's eternal torment, it's eternal. So you're in fire, but it doesn't consume you. Isn't that interesting? Hebrews 13 says that our God is a consuming fire. But when God shows up in fire, it rarely consumes. Right? I mean, think about the burning bush. Here is Yahweh, I mean, declaring himself Yahweh in a bush. So there is no question that this is God himself, this consuming fire, in this bush that's not being consumed. Think about the purifying fire of trials. When you go through a trial, when you go through a hard time in your life, the scriptures say that is a purifying fire. You go through that so that you can be refined, but you still come out the other side. The fire of judgment. The fire of judgment in 1 Corinthians 3 Right? All of your works are put into this fire and then it burns and all the stuff that's not eternal is burnt away. Everything that is 
eternal is left gems, gold, precious stones, all that kind of stuff. All throughout the Old Testament, we see chariots of fire. Why are these chariots still there? You know, like, if they're on fire, things that are on fire burn. They, they go away. If we burn this stage, it's not going to be here anymore. The fiery furnace in Babylon, right? They're in fire. Jesus shows up with them in the fire, and the fire doesn't burn them, but they're in the fire. An interesting point in the book of Nehemiah is that the walls of Jerusalem, if you read the, about the destruction of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem were, were completely destroyed by fire, the text says. Completely destroyed by fire. And then when Nehemiah rebuilds the walls, you see him taking the charred stones that still have all the fiery marks on them and rebuilding the wall with, with that which was burnt. I'm just saying, God and fire is an interesting mix For him to be a consuming fire that does not consume is interesting. Or maybe we just misunderstand what it means to be consumed by God. How was the world destroyed the first time? By water, by flood. That's right. And God gave us a rainbow as a sign of the promise that he would not do that again. How will the world be destroyed the last time? Will it be by water? No, how will it be? By fire. Except this is God's fire that we're talking about. So is God's fire going to destroy or is it going to purify? Is it going to make everything new? Listen to what happens in Revelation 21. I saw in heaven a new heaven, I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And we're like, yes, I want that. I want to not have to cry anymore. I want to not have any more pain. I want God to meet me in that place. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. I am making all of the things that currently are new. The new heaven and the new earth is a new heaven and a new earth that has been released, that has had its prayers answered. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in a hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of God. What is your freedom? Your freedom is your redemption, your redemption unto eternal life. The earth is groaning. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who had the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope 
we were saved. Hope that is not seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. God is making all things new. His great plan is not just the redemption of you as an individual. His great plan does not just include people. His great plan includes the redemption and the consummation of all things. God will stand for nothing that sin has destroyed to not be redeemed. That, that, that's the beauty of who he is. Like that, that, That's the glory of the blood of Christ. That's the wonder of the kingdom of God that comes through the person of Christ. And to be his is to have life. To not be his is to not have life. It is to have eternal death. It is to receive the consequence and punishment of sin that is not the kingdom of God, that is completely the kingdom of darkness. By faith, we grab hold of Christ, of him as a person, of him and his work, not of some little tract that he gives us and says, believe this. Like, convince yourself in your mind this is real and sign on the dotted line. And if you ever worry about it, remember September 13th, 2015. Just keep looking back at that. You said the right thing. Sometime, someday, you'll get out of here. What kind of life is that? That's a life that generally just produces more of the same. More of the same rituals, more of the same practices, more of the same spinning our wheels spiritually. Because God's not fulfilling his end of the bargain. Because his end of the bargain doesn't start until I'm dead. What God gives us now is eternal life now. Now. The kingdom of God now. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom, thy will be done now. This is the beauty of who he is. Uh, Team, you can come back up. Uh, I don't want to end here. Let me see. First John says this. Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, do you hear that? If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Let me read that again. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Where's God? Where's God? Here. How is he here? Like, what is his nature being here? He is king. He is ruler. He is the one who is making all things new. This is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is about being in this life-giving, eternal life-consumed relationship with God. Eternal life is to know God and to know the one that he sent, his son Jesus. Eternal life is a life that is the kingdom. 
It is a life that is spent living for the king. One of the most amazing chapters in scripture, and with this I end. 1 Corinthians 15. It's 58 verses long. That's a long chapter. 57 verses of it are about the resurrection, a bodily resurrection, which turns Gnostic theology right on its head because the body you have right now will be resurrected and made new. And it's this great, incredible theology of of, of the resurrection and what happens if we don't have the resurrection and how Jesus engages us and we are resurrected and our bodies are transformed and there's victory in that. And at the grand end of verse 57 is not anything about heaven or about future. Verse 58 says, therefore, because of all of this incredible, grand spiritual theology, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in God's work because you know that your work is not in vain in the Lord. That is assured confidence. That's the kind of confidence that you can walk in of knowing that the work that I do, even the work that I do for God at the place of work that I wish that I wasn't, (laughs) right? The work that I do for God in the midst of a relationship that is tense where she won't listen to me. Right? That is God. The work that I do as I parent my children and I'm not quite sure what in the world I'm doing. Right? God is there. He is in that. And in the midst of this grand resurrection, spirit release, be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The kingdom is real. The king is is powerful. The cross is still blood-soaked. The tomb is still empty. And all of this is what the assured confidence is that we walk in. It is Jesus. He is our confidence. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the beautiful work and release that you have given us in Christ. Thank you that you make all things new. Teach us, God, what it means to be people who live for your kingdom, who live with you as our king, who understand who we are in you, and through whom the eternal life of God flows in rushing rivers, through us and out to a world that is trapped in darkness, who needs the eternal life of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, here at Cornerstone, here in Lebanon, here in Lebanon County, here in the Lebanon Valley, here in southeastern PA, Pennsylvania, the East Coast, America, Canada, Mexico, the oceans, the rivers, the the waters, let your kingdom come around this world, God. You are worthy. You are fully worthy of the entire world. Every person on it, every tree and river, mountain, just the trees of the field clap their hands. These rocks cry out. Creation groans for its release. So God, release the sons of God at Cornerstone. Release the sons of God in your church. Release the bride of Christ, Father, to be fully who you made her to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Penny? Penny has a word of encouragement for us. I, uh, 
My sister and I were watching Daystar Friday, and on Daystar there was Christ for the Nations. Now, what I'm going to say is really, I think God really put on my heart for the young people, the teenagers. As I was listening to this, it's like uh, the Spirit of God just went through me, and he just put me on. Uh, pray for the young people at Cornerstone, the teenagers, the teenagers. And so there was two testimonies. They had like, um, I don't know if you've ever been to great place where they had worship and they had testimonies and they uh, talk about Jesus and salvation. But there was a lot of people there. Christ for the nations. There was this young man, I don't know how old he is, I can't remember his name, but he had a heart condition ever since he was born. And and during this time, it created an infection. Now, this when he was about 20. And so he was married, and he got sicker and sicker, and he ended up in the hospital. Well, they didn't know if he was going to make it. They flew him to the hospital, and uh, he lost his hand, that amputated his hand. His skin became black. His whole body was shutting down. It's a, it's a miracle he's alive. And then he lost three of his fingers. But he, he, he's in this worship band, this Christ for the Nations worship band, and he was playing the drums. No hand. I don't know how he did it. And then he, he lost three fingers, and he was worshiping God in this band on television on Daystar. And he gave him his testimony. And then there was this other young man. He was a preacher. He is a preacher. And so his parents were, he's from Canada, his parents are, well, his dad's a minister and his mother helps his dad, they're both working for God, but he rejected it, this young man, I don't remember his name, and he rejected that philosophy, and so he went his own way, doing his own thing, and of course he knew everything about the Bible, because his parents are ministers, and so God came to him, and he said, I have, I have uh, a work for you to do. He said, will you receive me as Lord and Savior? You make me Lord of your life. Will you do this work that I have for you to do? And, of course, he said, yes. God said, I'm only giving you one time. It's either yes or no. And he said, yes. So he was preaching on TV, Christ for the Nations. And God is opening doors for these people that work in Christ for the Nations. And they've gone, they had a video, and they've gone into Belgium, into Germany, into different places. And there's thousands, you can see in the video, thousands of people that are worshiping God, that are receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it was just so breathtaking to see what, how God is using these people. And as I was looking at this with my sister, I really believe that God is saying to the young people, especially the young people, no, look to him, really, make your whole life for him, because he's got work for you to do. He's got good plans for your life that will honor him if only you, you stay with him. Don't go to the left or right, stay on God's pathway. Because he will usually, exceedingly abundantly, more than you ever could dream of for his glory and his honor. Not just here, but for the nations. So that's yeah. what I wanted to share. I wanted to encourage the teenagers and the young people to just go and stay on God's pathway. No matter what. Even if you lose your hand, if you lose your leg, it doesn't matter. 
doesn't matter what you lose for God. And so just stay on your pathway because he will usually use you greatly for his glory and honor. Amen. Thank you, Penny. I think that uh, I think that the um, this reworking, this rewiring, I think of our mindset, is going to have to be a generational thing. So there's something that, as parents and as a church, we teach to our young people to think kingdom, to think the king, to think his government, um, and that we will see transformative works. And so I just strongly resound with what you brought. Thank you, and I'm going to pray for our young people as we um, close today so we can take that word to heart as well parents um, God thank you thank you for who you are in us thank you for Penny's testimony of the work that you desire to do in an intergenerational format God where it's not just about adults getting something or it's not about kids speaking of compartmentalization you know we just put kids over there and um, we wait where the church is an active generational move of God. And so we bless, we bless our children. We bless our kids in Jesus' name. From the youngest to the oldest, we pray a spirit of revelation upon them. We pray the glory and grace of God in their hearts. There is so much to distract today. Now I'm just talking kids here. I'm talking to all of us. There is so much to distract. There is always another screen to look at. There is always another task to get done. There's always homework. There's always a job. (laughs) There's always relationships that are confusing. There's always, you know, adolescent angst. All these things continually exist. The question is, is who is God in them and what is the kingdom of God in these places? And what does it mean for thy kingdom come and thy will to be done? in each of our lives. And so we pray that blessing on our young people. We pray that you would release within them, God, a deep yearning and pursuit of your heart for the, just an a, a incredible fire, a need for you. A desperation on their parts would be awoken in their spirits that sends them to you where they can be met nowhere else, set free nowhere else, satisfied nowhere else but with Christ. God, make us the kind of church that honors our children. Make us the kind of church where children honor their elders. Make us the kind of church that recognizes and sees the move of God down through generations. For the sake of those coming behind us, we live. We see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To see generations released and set free, walking in the will and the government of God. So we bless you. We thank you. And so may you, my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, may you go from this place filled with the assured confidence of who Jesus is and who you are in him. And may you live confidently as transformation bringers of the kingdom of God in every place that you go. In Jesus' name, amen.